Unium is the subscription management hub for B2B SaaS companies. Whether you're looking to expand to new markets, experimenting with pricing models, or simply want a streamlined quote to cash process, Unium got your back. On top of that, Unium Insights provides the SaaS metrics you need for reporting to the board and for future company valuation. It gives you the key figures needed to drive your business forward and take strategic decisions. Unium. We help SaaS companies manage their B2B customer subscriptions. Welcome everybody. This is Joe from StartupRate.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from the German speaking area, Germany, Austria and Switzerland, as well as the founder of Startup.Radio, the world's number one tech entrepreneurship radio. Today, I have a guest here, Jochen. Hey, how you doing? Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Totally my pleasure. You are here because we do a recording in our series with the German Startup Association, and you have been awarded the German Startup Awards Founder of the Year 2022. And not surprisingly, you founded a company many people may know in Europe as Flix, the, 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 the green buses driving around. They're not necessarily owned by you, but we'll get later get into that, as well as you just bought last year Greyhound in the USA. You also own um, some stuff in Turkey, Poland, Central Europe, and so on and so forth. But we'll get into that pretty soon. First, congratulations to the award. Very well deserved. Thanks a lot. And um, it's, it's certainly been a big honor as this award has also been given out by fellow entrepreneurs. Um, and I think something that I just took in representation of our team and, and for everything that I think the team has achieved over the years. I understand. I understand. Um, right now, uh, I usually start out with going through the live, at least what they tell on LinkedIn of the entrepreneurs. And I found you studied in Ottawa in Canada. Why Ottawa? And I assume you had to wear some warm socks there. <laughs> That's absolutely right. No, I was, I was, I guess, overall fascinated by North America, the US and, and Canada in particular. Um, I'm a big skier myself, so very passionate about skiing. That doesn't really explain why I chose Ottawa, because it's not specifically known for skiing. I mean, there's still some skiing around, but I just felt Canada in itself is a great place to be and, and also spend some time during university. I just love the combination of um, Canada as a country and then in Ottawa in particular, that people speak English and French, so felt I could... Um, connect to both languages, meet a lot of um, people there from um, Canada locally, but also internationals. Um, and I just had a fantastic time there. Mm -hmm. uh, what What is your favorite dish in Canada? Was it poutine? <laughs> I, I did. I did like poutine, indeed. Um, really liked it. Now, just like the whole culture around, let's say, sports bars and everything that that you sort of have and do there in terms of like watching sports, having some beers with friends, and having some. Most cases, unhealthy food. Um, I really enjoyed that. 
uh, that's part of of the allure for me watching football as well. You've been also studying in Stuttgart and WHU. We'll soon get to that. And you've been working with BCG Boston Consulting Group then. Um, you founded Flix in 2011 and on your LinkedIn CV, it looks like you did it in parallel with BCG. I, I know the working hours from consulting can be sometimes quite demanding. How did you manage that? Uh, it, it, it's very true. I mean, how did we get to sort of to do and, and launch Flix in the first place? Um, so we actually, uh, one of my co-founders and myself, we met at BCG. Um, the other guy, Daniel, is our tech um, co-founder. He's a former friend of Andre. They've known each other from school. And the three of us were sitting together multiple times around, look, we're not going to do consulting um, forever. We wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And actually in in 2009, the German government um, had announced their coalition contract. Um, back then, it was Merkel and Westerwelle um, who said, we're going to deregulate the German market for long-distance coach services. Um, so to understand this, something like Greyhound actually didn't exist in Germany. So it was forbidden to run um, bus networks in Germany to uh, like initially protect the trains from competition. The law was almost 80 years old. Um, and then in 2009, we were still... I said, deep into consulting work and didn't have too much time to look left and right. Um, and then started in 2010, a PhD research project. So Andre and myself effectively did this in, in parallel, different universities, different research topics and stuff. But this was the moment where we were, in fact, still employed by BCG, but they kind of gave us a sabbatical. Um, and we had a bit more time to look um, also into other things. And that was when we got even more excited about the opportunity of the market deregulation. And that was ultimately how we ended up also founding Flix, um, looking deeper into it, and over time, transitioning from spending more time on research on the PhD stuff to founding the business. And this was more of a gradual process that happened over like multiple months. Um, and that's why th this has this is in parallel, I guess, in the CV. And as you said, I think I, I started the PhD, but ultimately never finished it. I, th I think it's, it's good and bad. It's, it's always a bit of a, you want to finish the stuff that you started, but at the same time, if I hadn't started the PhD, I think I never got have, would have gotten the chance to actually launch Flix and ultimately be here today. Uh, two hints. One, uh, you, hopefully you forgive me. It explains a lot that you didn't finish your PhD when you started working more and more on Flix instead of your PhD work. On the other hand, uh, the question is, what was your topic? Yeah. I've actually, I've, I've spent a lot of time during my consulting times in, in B2B environments, so industrial engineering, industrial goods, etc. And I've actually researched on industrial service pricing. So I was fascinated about how you do service right and how you price these services. Um, and that was what I was spending time on the research front. I said, spent a lot of sort of time and, and research and actually also put up a, a bigger study, quantitative study with, with multiple companies. Never got to publish anything around it, um, but I said learned a lot for me, and I said have at least had the flexibility to, to then look into the Flix opportunity. And back then, and that's the in hindsight, it looks obvious, but back then everybody thought we're crazy. Like, why would you launch a bus business in in Germany um, during that time? And why would you not just finish your PhD, go back to consulting, have that safe job, good employer? Um, and, and, and everything around it. And everybody, I said, including our families, friends, wives, meanwhile, wives back then, girlfriends, thought we were completely crazy to do this bus thing then. Um, and we just felt this is such a big and unique opportunity that, that we couldn't resist. And um, in the end, it was the combination of 
there's a market being deregulated, so this doesn't happen all that often. Um, and at the same time, we felt it's an an old school traditional industry with like true family owned businesses, actual entrepreneurs um, who are lacking one thing that we felt we could bring to the table, which is the the brand, the sort of the platform logic. We helped them to orchestrate everything around it. I mean, ultimately partnered with them and, and felt this is a, a unique combination that we just we just couldn't let pass. And we felt if we don't do it we'll, we'll, and someone else does it and this is working out and there's going to be a big and successful business, we're going to regret it for the rest of our lives. Um, and that ultimately made us jump um, and, and try it out and ultimately launch Flix. Admittedly, I have seen your partner, Andre, when he did a presentation at TU Darmstadt, where he was also starting and not finishing his PhD. They still invite him over. So I think there are no hurt feelings on both sides here. Um, we, we, we just started talking about, so basically what was driving you was a political decision. When I was growing up in Germany, I, I wasn't aware of the legal restraints, but I thought it very odd that you could drive every, almost every big city by bahn but you had this amazing really big network of uh german autobahns which are renowned around the world but you could not use it by bus little disclaimer here for our american audience yes there are buses driving on the autobahn but they cannot go as fast as they want only on only vehicles with people in it like no trucks like no no buses can go as fast as they want really sorry if you want to speed you have to rent a car um go, going a little bit back more to the serious topic you founded GoBus, later renamed to Flixbus, and now renamed to flix because you do a lot more um that was basically a political driver uh where you saw the opportunity how did you approach the problem because as we said before in the beginning you did not own the buses i do understand in some countries you're now owning parts or all of the bus fleet but in germany you still don't right yeah that's right i mean when we and maybe sort of looking at how the business model works our initial hypothesis on this market was that you need someone to orchestrate all the different players to ultimately put up a nationwide network to have a big brand big customer awareness and also the scale to build technology around it to sort of invest into marketing. And there's tons of companies out there who know how to operate coaches and bus services. And and they would probably be much better than than on that than we would ever be. Um, and that's what we felt. The model should be some sort of a partnership between us and these typically, as I said, family-owned, small, medium-sized businesses that are doing all sorts of bus services already. They run charter business. They run school transportation, public um, transit networks, all sorts of stuff. And they would run a part of their fleet for us under our branding together with us. And, and that's kind of how we set it up in the first place. And we told them, look, we're going to invest into the, the brand, the platform, build the technology, um, do all the sort of network planning, optimization, pricing, yield management, and all the marketing around it. And you'll operate these buses for us. Um, and then we'll, we'll partner and we'll share revenues with you. And, and that's that was the initial hypothesis and the initial model. And that actually survived since the early days we with a sort of few evolutions here and there but ultimately this is still the model in which we operate so we felt we're not going to be the, the good and the best operators but this is what our partners are are really really good at the very efficient very good quality operators um and and that's how we partner and that's where that sort of helped us also to to scale faster than everybody else the the original model in this industry is capex heavy it's asset intense it's integrated so people try to um, 
try to do everything. Uh, so being the retail and sales platform, the marketing platform, and at the same time, the operators. And the old school companies in the space, so the transportation companies, also the, the train, the state rail folks, etc. they sort of do and think this and live this business out of an asset perspective. They're like, how do we use our assets efficiently and, and not really think about it from a customer-centric point of view? And that's that's been the big differentiator from us to everybody else out there. We were very focused on the customer, on optimizing the product, service levels, pricing, how do we do marketing efficiently, etc. And this was the game changer. Um, and I said, then have had the sort of the luck and I guess also lots of work to ultimately persuade them to partner with the strongest operators out there. Um, and this has been ultimately the, the sort of secret source of our success, that this partnership has been much stronger than any other setup, any other business in our industry, because it helped us to scale a business that um, historically has been CapEx heavy and, and you need a lot of capital to build this um, with us being very focused on the platform, technology, marketing and brand side. Um, and I said, then partnering with these, these um, private family owned businesses. Mm -hmm. um, when you say CapEx, you mean capital expenses, meaning all the investments like in physical stuff that needs to go in there. Exactly. Of all, all the investment that goes into the fleet, into building up the operations. I mean, we were, we were also using the existing infrastructure from our partners. They have existing depots that they operate out from. If you need to build this from scratch, it's hundreds and hundreds, if not billions of um, investment. Um, that you needed to put up to uh, effectively run a network like ours. Um, and I mean, you, you mentioned Greyhound. Um, Greyhound is still operated in this more traditional model of an integrated um, business with own sort of sales um, outlets, retail, etc. Um, but also own fleet, own assets, own depots, own terminals, own maintenance on, and all of this. Um, this has been the historic way of doing it. And we're sort of, as I said, have disrupted the industry by ultimately partnering with the industry and helping also them to participate in our market. Like, because individually, none of our partners could have um, effectively participated in this market because like they're all typically local at max regional, but none of them could have built a, a nationwide or like above regional level um, network that we ultimately put together with hundreds of partners that we're now having among our side to operate our networks across Europe, the US, and also meanwhile, other countries like, um, like Brazil. Mm -hmm. I have some fond memories of traveling Greyhound when I was in college because I didn't own a car. And uh, sometimes you could either fly or go by Greyhound. And as a student, college student, you always take the Greyhound. <laughs> um, you were not the only ones looking at this opportunity back then in Germany. Um, you had a very fierce competition with a long distance bus called Mein Fanbus, which literally translates to my long distance bus. Um, at one point, uh, they've been larger than you, but they disappeared and you prevailed. Can you tell us why? Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Like in the early days in Germany, when the market was deregulated, what happened was pretty much what everybody expected, that tons of players were coming up on the market intense competition. Um, so we've had a few startups apart from ourselves. Um, we've had the big corporates, so Deutsche Bahn, the, the German state rail guys, um, put up a, um, a network from even two brands. Um, UK transportation companies um, came over and, and launched networks. It's very intense competition. Um, in the end, there was us and mein Fernbus who were um, sort of growing the fastest, who were like building the biggest customer traction, especially in the first one, two years. Um, And we always knew that ultimately this market needs to consolidate at some point to make it to make it work and to make it profitable and to make it sustainable in the end. Um, and then we've 
we've at, at some point also started talking to the founder team of, of uh, Mindfamous and, and sort of had a chat around, hey, what's your philosophy and your vision about this business? And, and we immediately clicked in terms of we have the same ambition level. We need to build something that's that's lasting, that's sustainable, that's that's working, that ultimately also gives a, a good and healthy business to our partners um, and also have the same idea around product standards, quality, how do we run this business, how does the business model work? Um, and that's where we felt this is a very, very exciting opportunity to put these two businesses together. Um, and that's then, then, then how we did it. And um, I mean, as you mentioned, it, we, we launched under GoBus initially. That was the first brand that we thought would work. Then relatively quickly figured, hey, it's very difficult to get all the domains that you need. And, and Google was always asking us, did you mean Globus when we typed in GoBus? So we felt that's not, not a very good starting point to build a brand. Um, and then looked into what's what's other possibilities and ultimately came up with Flix where we felt, hey, this is great. Um, it's international. Everybody can say it, pronounce it, write it. It works in multiple languages. Um, all the domains were available. Um, and, and we had a similar discussion then with Mindfamous on how do you build a brand out of these two? And um, actually Flix started as a blue brand. So Flixbus was blue initially. Mindfamous was green. Um, and then we said, look, we need to make the best of both worlds, like bring the teams together, unite them, create more as a pure sum of the parts. So this needs to be one plus one is three. Um, and then also on the branding side, said, look, let's take the green. It's very much the color that also transports how eco-friendly this mean of transportation is. But let's use Flix as the name because it's much more international. It's going to work also outside of Germany. Um, we we want to expand across Europe and multiple other countries. This is the sort of future brand. And that's kind of how we, we put it all together. Um, and um, and that's ultimately how it worked for us and also how we explained it to the team, explained it to the customers, um, and then built this sort of ongoing story from there. And this was end of 2014. So only only two years into the market launch, um, we actually put these two businesses together to create the German market leader and then use this basis to, to expand further across Europe. Mm -hmm. um, when you when you talked about uh, ditching GoBus and coming up with Flix, I had a picture in mind of three guys sitting around a, a table in a Hofbräu house drinking beer. <laughs> was, was that approximately how you did it? There was a lot of brainstorming involved and there may have been a few beers involved too. Um, but um, it's been intense discussions for sure with like amongst us plus sort of the, the small team that we had back then. Um, and I said, ultimately, felt Flix is the is the way to go. Um, and and today, still very happy with it because, I mean, as you said early on, we're now um, the the company is called Flix SE, so it's a um, it's a sort of a stock holding corporation. Um, and we also built not only Flix Bus but Flix Train on the side. There's services around it, so we just use Flix as the um, as the the guiding brand, um, but also built additional products and services around it. Mm -hmm. Um. In an older interview, you talked about unit economics. Flix would only make sense if you would make profit on every trip. Um, I think that was also uh, one of the reasons why you uh, why you've been doing that good because you started out with a profit per trip. Um, do you think in the current market environment we are recording this towards end of? August, um, do you think the founders out there also should focus more on generating profit or at least having profit inside, not just generating a website with a zillion website visitors and say, oh, yeah, you know, we will sell diamonds to them? <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, I guess from the very first day, our philosophy has been 
we need to build this into a stain, sustainably working business. Um, and this needs to be also making money first for our partners because um, they run all the risk of the, the the investment into the fleet, the drivers, all the operations, which is massive. Um, and then over time also for us as a, as a global business and, and on the platform and technology side. So we always were very focused around healthy unit economics in general. Um, so, and, and I mean, coming back down to what you said in terms of every ride needs to be profitable, that's how we try to manage our network. And this is where all the complexity of our business comes in. When you, when you want to break it down to every single trip and every single part of the line and, and trips that you're operating. So we would usually operate not, not like an airline business in A to B connection, but it's an A to F connection and all the combinations in between. So this can be B to C or B to D or C to F and, and everything that you can sort of imagine on, on that line. And that makes all the complexity of our business. And that's why also technology is so powerful for us to really break it down into every single detail of our, of our network and to optimize every single detail. And that's been, I think, one of the driving forces behind our sort of thinking about it, like how can we be customer centric? How can we optimize every single detail of our business to ultimately make this profitable? And I said, we needed to create healthy unit economics relatively early on for our partners to continue to operate with us and continue to invest with us and expand their fleet. So this was a, I think a very different mindset from, hey, you built a venture back business and like burn a lot of money from the early days until at, I don't know, decades thereafter, um, profit is going to be inside at some point. So I said, we've, we've always managed a portfolio of, you have a network of multiple lines and like the longer the lines are live, the, the closer you need to go to profitability and then into profitability relatively early. Um, so that was, that was the mindset. And coming back to your question in terms of what's the sentiment in the market and how should founders think about profitability and unit economics? I think it's the, the underlying, the underlying reason of a business is to make money. Um, that's why people build businesses and that's what, what business is for. Um, and if you don't have a path to that for unhealthy unit economies or for no way to get there, then it's just probably it's just not a business. Um, and that's, I think, where the, the setback and the sort of sentiment change on the investor side is something that I feel is actually very healthy from the heydays through the pandemic, where a lot of businesses were funded that probably wouldn't have gotten funding in normal times. And I think it's, it's more of a normal time that we see versus a, a catastrophe or, or a crisis um, right now. Um, and I think that sort of sharpened focus on unit economics, on, on healthy businesses, on a path to profitability is something that's actually very, very good. Um, and it also differentiates the good businesses from the no businesses. Um, and, and in that sense, we feel we're in a very good situation because we've, we've had our crisis like through the pandemic. That was incredibly hard and tough. And we, it wasn't our fault in this case, right? Like it was not our fault that a global pandemic hits our markets and, and travel demand is just collapsing. Um, but we've sort of navigated through this um, and now we're in a position where demand has come back. We've, we've put a lot of work and effort into driving efficiency, driving automation, improving profitability overall and how we can manage and steer our business. Um, and that's why we're now in a very, very good situation, have a very healthy network and business overall. Um, and, and we're not yet there because there's still sort of the aftermath of the pandemic visible in, in our numbers, but we're getting um, to profitability very soon. Um, and then I think we're I said in a very good spot, um, and this has always been a driving force behind us to build a healthy and, and ultimately sustainable business. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is following on a regular basis our news wrap ups we do on a monthly basis. And um, if they would, they would know that for some time during the pandemic, you completely shut down all the coach operations. How long did it last? Yeah, this was um, relatively early on in the pandemic. So 
And this is, again, the benefit of having a portfolio of countries. We've seen the impact of that COVID had on Italy um, in the early days. So we've re I've received WhatsApp messages from our local um, uh, managing director sending me pictures of empty shelves and like what's going on. And like we obviously kept track of demand collapsing in Italy and, and numbers going down and stuff. And we kind of could prepare what was going to happen across all our other countries. Um, and as you said, we, we had to shut down the almost entire network, except for a very few exceptions, but um, over March and April 2020, so almost seven, eight weeks, we didn't run any um, any operations. And this was dramatic to see um, a business collapsing completely from growing massively. I mean, we've been used to growing significantly. And, and also in January, February 2020, we were growing 40, 50% um, over the previous year. And suddenly the whole business disappears. Um, so this was absolutely dramatic. Um, and back then we didn't know if it's ever going to come back um, and if we're going to survive this and, and what was going to happen. So this was a very, very difficult um, time. But ultimately um, had this incredible team there um, that found solutions, that brought all the passion to the table um, and, and helped us navigate through this, this time and through this crisis. And I think in the end helped us also come out of it stronger. We talked about it earlier. Also allowed us to, to do bold moves like um, the acquisition of Greyhound um, to even um, also expand our market leadership in the US um, and consolidate this market for us and help us build a sustainable footprint there too. I mean, I think this is just thanks to all the passion and all the incredible work that the team has put put into Flix over the sort of more than two years of the pandemic. Um, and it's great to see now that this unfolds, that demand is coming back, that people go back to travel and it feels like a much more normal environment now. Um, and it's great to see that all of this hard work now pays off. Mm -hmm. um, you've ha you've still have an incredible team, but according to Crunchbase, you also had incredible investors who funded you up to Series G right now with 1.2 billion US dollars at the last published valuation of 3 billion US dollars. Um, can, you're, you're also active as a business angel. We get late to do that. Can you give us a few hints about Good fundraising, have your numbers, your way to profitability there, get a solid team and have an idea how you actually get your clients. Because I, I frequently see people who either have an awesome idea, but no idea how to make profit out of that, or they have an idea how to make profit, but not how to get into this business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, also what you need for fundraising changes over the stages that you're in so that the later you go the more it's going to be about all the details all the numbers asset healthy unit economics customer acquisition costs lifetime values etc so there's a lot of very granular and detailed due diligence from the investor side and that's i think totally makes sense um i think in the early days you need to start off with a clear vision um, and a clear strategy on how to make this work just as you said um, there needs to be a big market out there um, that you can tackle and you need to have a very clear solution for an actual problem that people had. Um, and the problem that people have and had in our market was the the lack of um, sustainable and affordable mobility. It was just not there. You could either use your car, which has come, I mean, especially nowadays, even more expensive. It's just incredibly expensive to run your car if you look at um, not only from a gas price, but also from a full cost perspective. And then it was expensive train tickets and that was pretty much it. Um, so we created this alternative and that's why we've been so successful because we're solving an actual problem um, with and a very sort of catering for a very big demand. Um, and then I said over time, I think you still need to get people excited about the long-term vision and the the, the long-term strategy. And if you don't get the excitement 
from the investors and it's probably not going to be the right investor for you. So there needs to be this early excitement and this passion and this love for the business also on the other side. And if you don't receive this, then you probably shouldn't spend too much time on these investor discussions. <laughs> That's at least my big learning. Um, and then I said, it ultimately comes down to, to all the details of the numbers. You need to prove that the business is either already profitable or has a clear path to profitability or at least has healthy unit economics that you can build from and that you can sort of drive efficiency over time, drive improvement over time, and that you have a clear way to do this. And this is what I think you need to demonstrate. And that's the ultimately also, the I think, the ability that the founder and management team needs to bring to the table to not only run this business, but also pitch it and explain it to investors. That's a, a crucial part in fundraising that many people underestimate. Um, so if you, I think if you ask people, do you want to be in sales? Um, most founders and managers would say, ah, I'm not so sure about it. But if you're founding a business and, and trying to raise money, you're always in sales. You're selling your story, you're selling your business, you're selling your, your equity pitch all the time. You're also selling your vision to potential employees. Exactly. And, that, and that's, that's the same. That's the sort of other side of the, the story. You need to sell this also to the people that you want to join your team. So you're always on sales, if you will. Um, one question I had when I was uh, preparing for this interview, would you agree to be the, called the Uber of buses? <laughs> Not really, because, of course, we're, we're kind of in a similar market. Um, at the same time, um, Uber is addressing the urban mobility and transport problems. We're addressing... Um, the mid and long distance space. So it's a it's a different segment of the mobi global mobility market, if you will. And also our model is different in terms of we're not working with single individual um, operators or, or people that ultimately drive these Uber cars. We're working with companies um, um, that employ these drivers, that um, invest into the fleet, etc. So it's professional structures. They also have other businesses that they operate in and only sort of work part of their, their business with us. Um, so it, it is different in that sense. Um, and to be fair, there's been a lot of negative noise around Uber and like how the model works and if it's, it's sustainable, etc. So I wouldn't want us to be too deeply associated with it, acknowledging that we're kind of in a very similar market and addressing a similar problem at a different segment. Hmm. And now we leave the question open if Uber ever becomes profitable in your opinion. Um, last year, talking to Lukasz Gadowski, he said you have to go deeper and work on the details to outperform your competitors. Uh, he gave, for example, the idea that they used to get the orders in the app and then had to send a fax to the restaurant to actually get this. And at one point, they just made an app and then the restaurant saw it and confirmed it. That's it. But you have to go deep into the details to actually do that, go deeper than your competitors. Would you agree to that? I would absolutely agree. I think it's especially true for all um, operationally complex businesses that um, operational excellence, passion for detail, um, and sort of that laser focus on customer centricity and ultimately also user technology is something that's compounding over time. So if you improve a little bit every single day and also drive this into your culture, That's something that compounds um, and that and people completely underestimate that compounding effect um, that you can build out of this. This is this is incredible. And this has been differentiating us again from everybody else because we've been building technology that's been dedicated for our specific industry, for our use cases, for our very specific problems um, and building it on a, on a granularity, on a level of detail that nobody else did. And this is compounding and this is differentiating. 
And this ultimately creates a competitive advantage that's very, very, very difficult, if not impossible, to, to replicate. Um, so I, I absolutely agree. And this is also what I think, if you're on the investor side, what you should look in, in, in founding teams on what's their ambition, especially, as I said, in these operationally complex businesses to really get into all the, the depth of the details of the business, to understand this, to optimize it, to find new and innovative solutions. This is where big businesses are being built. Mm -hmm. um, talking about building big businesses, awesome. You, you, you give me all the cues I need. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, you have a long and successful history of acquisitions, mine fanboss we already talked about. Then in 2016, you really got to work with Megabus in Central Europe, Postbus of the German uh, mail operator, Deutsche Post, they, they they were going, oh, in the past we used horses and uh, just delivered the mail and maybe we can do it in the belly of buses and also transport people, not thought from, from the customer perspective. Hello from Austrian railway operator, Österreichische Bundesbahn, Swebus in Sweden 2018, Polski Bus in Poland 2018, Eurolines with European routes. Uh, in 2019, you already bought something in Turkey. And um, now, now political correct to say Turkey year, and in 2021 Greyhound lines in the US. And first thing I had in mind: How do you make good acquisitions? Basically, first you need to make sure this aligns with you, and secondly, you have to make sure at one point you can get the unit economics out of it, like and plus everything on your platform, because it doesn't make sense to have like. 20 countries, 60 platforms, and 90 operating models that will completely bankrupt your company instantly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, totally agree. I mean, on, on, on M&A, I think for us, this has always been a an integral part of our growth strategy. We always felt there's a massive value in also integrating existing businesses onto our platform. Um, and this is for, I guess, a few things. First, of course, consolidation in these markets help us to drive profitability for sure, but We believe that we're ultimately the best owners for pretty much all of these businesses because we've built this technology that's just superior to anything that you would find in the market. And this is where we're driving massive synergies on the cost side on the one end, but also on the how do you optimize this business um, on the other end. And it's it's just every like time and again, it's incredible for me to see with how little technologies um, and, and like, software solutions, um, data understanding the incumbents are managing these businesses. I said, this is incredibly complex. I mean, we're, we're now operating around 5,000 destinations and just the sheer sort of mathematical number of combinations that you can you can build in these um, in this vast amount of um, destinations and, and like with that network, it's just incredible to manage without the proper technology. And that's where we've created a lot of value by integrating these businesses into ours and especially into our technology. And that's, I guess, also the... the Our, the clear path for us is always we need to integrate onto our platform. There's no way around it, period. So there's no, we connect the old system to our system. There's no APIs or something. We just throw it away and integrate it onto our business. We may build a few features that are specific for these um, very markets, but you, you mentioned Turkey. Turkey works different as a, as a market, so customer behavior is different. So we had to build a few features that we didn't have before. Um, but in itself, it's still the same platform. We run it out of that exact same technology stack. It's the same um, tech that operates Germany, that operates in Turkey, that is also soon to be operating in the US. 
So just take Greyhound as, as a second example. Certainly a massive business. Um, everybody knows it in the US. And as, as you said earlier, it's quite interesting. Like you hardly meet anybody who doesn't have any sort of an, a personal and, and in many cases emotional association with, with Greyhound. doesn't necessarily always have to be positive, but at least you have one. Um, so it's a good starting point to, to also use that brand value for us. Um, and we, we will integrate this onto our business um, very soon um, into our tech stack. The existing um, tech that um, Greyhound is using is older than the average age of our engineer. So it's very difficult for them to maintain it. They actually, in some cases, needed to get people out of retirement to sort of continue to maintain um, the technology stack and, and their sales platform. Pretty much sounds like the banks who still hire uh, Cobalt developers out of retirement because their systems are so old. Yeah, ex exactly. And this is this 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 just gives you a sort of very very clear picture of how much potential upside is there for us. Not, and there's a, that's the cost side of things. So we can be much more efficient on running the technology, the, the, that part of it, and, op and then also optimizing it. Um, and I mean, it, it's much easier to sort of optimize such a complicated network over many decades with like incremental improvements, etc. But when we've built our own dedicated software that helps us optimize that entire network that makes proposals on How do you operate this business most efficiently? Where's the demand? How do you build the network um, around it? How do you build dedicated schedules? Um, how do you optimize it? A few minutes here and there, etc. So there's all this, again, coming back to the level of detail that you need to, in the end, run a profitable and sustainable business. Mm -hmm. um, y y I already told you before the interview that this question will come. You have so many routes, so many destinations, more than 5,000, you already said. What is the longest distance you can cover with flicks. I, I would have in mind something from Portugal or something on the Algarve coast uh, to Central or Eastern Europe or something from Northern Sweden to Southern Turkey. Um, yes, your buses cannot swim, but they can go on ferries. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an interesting question and probably it's pretty much on par if you look at North America where you can, you can meanwhile go from, coming back to early part of this interview, to, to Canada And you can probably, with a few interconnections, go all the way down to Mexico if you want. Um, and at the same time, you can go from the eastern parts of Turkey um, all the way down to Portugal. That's over 5,000 kilometers all across Europe. Um, that's probably the longest distance that, that you can cover at this point. I'm not sure if anybody has ever done that, and I'm certainly not going to be the first. But um, in theory, you could. Um, to be fair, most of our customers are, are traveling in the ballpark of two to five hours which in Europe is 200 to 500 kilometers. In the US, you can take the same number, but translate it into miles and, and it's the same. So 200 to 500 miles, that's like the, the typical distances that, that the people travel with us. Um, and that's where also the bus is just a very, very efficient mean of transportation, very efficient on the cost side and also on the um, sustainability ecology side. So our carbon footprint is just very, very efficient. Um, and that's, I think, where it, it makes just the most sense to use a bus for, for your travel. Mm -hmm. uh, what, one quick question. Um, you, you're headquartered your Greyhound operations, your US operations in Dallas, not as you usually do either in New York or in Silicon Valley. I assume it's mostly for the reason that Greyhound is already there. Um, but uh, do, do you already know a few good places to have uh, breakfast and dinner in Dallas? <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, like we've When we launched the U.S., we actually set up our um, first team in um, in Los Angeles because um, <clears throat> we started on the West Coast <laughs> and felt the Valley is just incredibly expensive and it doesn't make sense for us. Um, 
And then we also built a team in New York um, where we had the first sort of Flix headquarter pre, um, pre-ground. And as the ground team is, is significantly larger than our Flix team um, has been, um, we decided to also move our, um, our U.S. headquarter um, into Dallas and feel it's actually a very good place to be, um, not only for breakfast um, and dinner locations and, um, and good steak, but also for for talent, um, I think the sort of the, the talent market there is great, um, and it's it's not yet as competitive as it is in in the Valley or in New York. Um, so I think for us, it's actually a very good location, and there's good flight connections into Europe, um, too, which also plays a role in terms of how how often can you be there on on the ground and sort of um, manage and, and and help the teams. Mm-hmm. You already hinted at steak, my personal favorite Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> so, sorry, a, a, a little detour, but also your company took a little detour because you are operating as Flix, not only as Flix Bus, because you are now also doing train connections, at least here in Germany. Can you give us a little bit um, of an idea how this ties into one another? Yeah, sure. And I wouldn't say this is a detour because we already had it in our very first pitch decks in the pre-seed round, if you will. We always said this um, this space is being is being driven by bus and train. So you ultimately need to also connect these two means of transportation. And there's a big sort of synergy between them. You can interconnect and you can use a bus where it's most efficient. You can use a train where this is more efficient. Um, so this has been always on our agenda. Um, it took us a while actually to, to get into this business because it's It's very complicated. Um, it's even more sort of capital intense. You need to pull up um, the rolling stock. You need to find partners to ultimately operate it. So business model-wise, we, we operate it in a very similar way. Um, and I said, um, have launched this um, gradually over time um, and, and have started in Germany with a few partners that were operating private um, train connections and, and long-distance connections in competition to the state monopoly. Um, so the, the German... Um, state rail folks, they still own 99% of the market, um, but we feel it's it's ripe for private competition. It's ripe for adding a new product to the market. And this is a bit, again, coming back to deregulation and, and analogies, this is a bit like what happened in the airline space 20, 25 years ago, where low-cost carriers were disrupting this market completely. And Initially, I think the flagship carriers were like, I'm not sure how big this market is ever going to be. Today, low-cost carrier... Um, They run more passengers than, than the flagship carriers usually. Um, and it's, it's massive businesses. Most of them are run very efficiently and part to, to many other airlines actually turn a profit. Um, so we think it's, it's actually the better business. Um, and as I said, with a combination with our bus network, our sort of brand reach that we have, our existing customer base, it's a very logical step for us to move into this um, and continue to build out our network, our inventory and provide as an additional product that's very attractive to our customers. We, we already recording for more than 40 minutes. We cut the last part a little bit short because I only booked one hour with you and we talked before, uh, but let us go a little bit into the outlook. Um, I was imagining what the next uh, step for Flix could be. And I was thinking, hmm, you already, you did buses. You bought a lot of bus operators. Now you do railways. Is your next step to buy a few railway operators? <laughs> well, To be, to be fair, there's not so many private long-distance rail operators out there that you could possibly buy. There's a few, but not so many. Um, so there may be an opportunity here and there at some point, but we feel this is going to be an organic growth strategy primarily for us. So we're, we're building this out of our existing capabilities, um, built this organically over time. And this is, a, a, I mean, 
we feel a decade-long growth story ahead of us. Um, so on top of, I think, what we're adding on the with the FlixTrain product, we will just continue what we've been doing over the past 10 years for the next 20, 30, 40 years, which is expand our network, add more cities and destinations, add more countries, um, and ultimately, as I said, provide great service to our customers. Um, and we've, we've started... Um, out, as I said, in Germany, we've expanded pretty much all across Europe. And today we're effectively we're in 40 countries globally. So adding North America, Canada, US, Mexico, um, launched into Brazil. Um, there's many places in the world where we're not present yet. Um, Brazil is the first place in, in South America. Most of these markets are bigger bus markets than any single European country because it's the backbone of their transportation system. Right? People are very used to, to using it. At the same time, we feel it's not great products in many in many cases. So there's a lot of innovation that you can bring. There's a lot of also better prices that you can bring. And the same is true for Asia. Um, <laughs> just take take the bigger countries um, in, in India, in Thailand, in Vietnam, um, you name it. I mean, Indonesia, I personally like Indonesia a lot. Um, so there's a lot of places where we feel um, we have a right to win and there's no reason why our product and business model shouldn't work in these places too. So there's a long way for us to go in terms of expanding our business further. Yeah, when you talked about Indonesia, I had in mind like the the Sicilians of Little Island. So uh, you may want to think about also operating ships there. <laughs> We may add Flix ferry or Flix boat or something to the to the mix. So. <laughs> ah, pretty good, pretty good. Um, you are also active as a business angel for example you have invested in the unicorn sender kala medkit doc or cleverly how do you make decisions to invest and where could people pitch a deck to you <laughs> yeah i mean over time and we're, we're maybe this is as a um, as a note before we always invest um, together so the three of us daniel andre myself that we've launched um, Flix together and built Flix, Flix together. We're also investing together. So um, we, we kind of over time had inbound from other startups and, and founders that, that felt we may add value to their cap table, to, to what they're building with the stuff that we've seen, the experience that we're bringing, and possibly also the network that we're bringing. And that's usually the situations that we like when we have the feeling of we can add something to the table and help these teams and founders build their business and maybe avoid a few mistakes that we've done in the early days. Um, And that's, that's, as I said, usually the situations that we like the most. And I think the sort of investment hypothesis is pretty simple. Um, you think you, you need to address a big market, an actual real problem, um, and have very strong founder teams. Um, and that's usually what it comes down to for us as we're investing very early stage. So it's usually pre-seed, seed rounds. In some cases, we invest in Series A, maybe Series B together with funds that we know well. Um, but it's usually, as I said, very early. Um And we, we get excited when, when these founders really have the drive to, to change something in a big market, in a big industry. That's, that's what excites us. And I mean, the, the examples that you mentioned are these cases. Um, so very real problems for customers, very big industries. Um, and that, that's where we get excited. Um, and then I said, we, we usually get inbound through all the different channels, through the network, via email, cold emails, calls, LinkedIn, whatever. Um, And that's usually also how you reach us best. <laughs> I see. Uh, Jochen, I've been now interviewing you for almost 50 minutes. That should set a new record, even longer than Finn Hensel or Lukas Gadowski. <laughs> uh, they are always welcome to come back and do a longer interview with me. It was nonetheless, thank you very much. A pleasure to have you as a guest and congratulations again to winning your award. 
Thanks a lot. Um, my pleasure. It was great talking to you um, and hope um, whoever listens to this enjoyed um, our conversation. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. See you too. Bye. That's all, folks. Find more news, streams, events, and interviews at www.startuprad.io. Remember, sharing is caring. When you're an entrepreneur with a great idea, it can be daunting to find funding. Startup Raven takes the process out of your hands by helping entrepreneurs connect and learn about potential investors all in one place without any long-filled forms or thousand questions. Sign up for early access at startupraven.com.